Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Before we get started on this week's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about BOF Professional, our global membership community from the business of fashion, which keeps you up to date with everything you need to know about the global fashion industry. For a limited time, we are offering BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF professional membership. For more details, click on the episode notes. 
If you can be surprising, unique, personalized, engaging, and repeatable as a brand, you will stand out. It's just simply no longer good enough to say, you know what, we'll just take an average proposition to market and we'll buy enough advertising to, to bring people to us. Is wholesale really dying or already dead? What we are really seeing taking place in the market is a transition whereby media is becoming the store. Now, I think the role of a store is to become media. What's the biggest threat facing retailers right now? I mean, wouldn't you be scared of Amazon? They're a media company, they're an advertising company, they're logistics, they're shipping, they're, they're whatever they want to be. And that's what makes them particularly dangerous. Brands, they may make the decision to sell on Amazon. My encouragement would be, do it with your eyes wide open and, and pack a parachute. You know, you're probably better off to say, how can we be the anti-Amazon? How can we actually give consumers that surprise and delight? Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week on Inside Fashion, I sit down with Doug Stevens. Doug is a renowned retail industry futurist, advisor, author, an all-around great guy. He's a regular columnist here on the business of fashion, and his progressive thinking has influenced some of the most recognizable global brands, including Google, Disney, Intel, and Walmart. Prior to starting his company, Retail Profit, Doug spent over 20 years in the retail industry, and I wanted to sit down with him to make sense of all the change that's happening in the retail landscape. Doug is the author of several books, most recently, Re-Engineering Retail, The Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World. So without further ado, I'm happy to share my conversation with Doug Stevens, Inside Fashion. So I wanted to start, Doug, just by learning a little bit about kind of how you ended up in this chair in front of me and <laughs> have become a globally renowned retail expert like what's what's Doug Stevens's story how did you where did you you know start your career and how did you develop this passion and interest in the retail space to begin with so um, so I got into retail the way most people get into retail and and that is by becoming an actor um, so I actually studied acting I studied drama really so yes. did I did did you yeah amazing yeah okay well we'll have to Maybe we'll just break into a soliloquy here and there as we do this. Uh, yeah, I studied at the National Theatre School of Canada. This is after university. I, I had this, this, this enormous passion around the theatre and performance. And so I studied there for three years, uh, graduated from school, came out, um, did, did what all struggling actors do, you know, act a little bit while you're looking for other acting work. And in the meantime, um, I had met a woman and decided to get serious and settle down. And, and so the realities of family and home and life and all that sort of um, took over. And, and I uh, decided I w it was time to, not, you know, I'd continue to act, but I'd get a real job in the meantime. And that got me into retail. And so I just sort of... Um, very, like on the very, shop floor? On the shop floor, yeah. I started working for a Toronto-based retailer and I determined really quickly that I didn't want to stay on the, on the sales floor. And so I just began to work my way up through corporate, first as a corporate trainer, then kind of into the marketing stream, the operations stream. 
And then one thing leads to another, and 25 years later, you turn around and you say, oh my God, I've been in the retail industry for 25 years. And by that time, I was running a, a division of a company in New York City, so I'd moved my family down to New York. What company was that? It was Benjamin Moore. Okay. Actually, a huge uh, paint company, and I was running a division of their stores for them. And this is around 2008. And um, I, I, like other people, I sort of saw the writing on the wall that you know there was something really big about to happen. And uh, by this point, my kids were ready for school, and so I decided it was time to come back to Canada. And when I did get back, I thought, you know what? I've always had this passion around the future. Even when I was working in corporate, I was sort of myopically fixated on like what's coming, wh you know, what's around the corner. And so I decided to dedicate myself to the future and, and understanding retail. And it seemed like a good time because everything was, be you know, just kind of coming unglued. Everything from economics to demographics, the media landscape was changing, technology. Yeah. So it was a good timing. So that was nine years ago that I started Retail Profit. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's talk a bit about your prophecies then. And um, w in particular, one of the questions that seems to come up uh, time and again when I'm meeting with executives that are grappling with the change that you alluded to just mm. now, it's, um, it's really about channel mix and the role of like wholesale, you know, bricks and mortar retail, online retail. Um, and in, in particular, there's a lot of conversation around wholesale. And, you know, a lot of some people, I think, including you, are saying, you know, the, the days of wholesale are numbered. Mm -hmm. um, is wholesale really dying or, or already dead? I think a lot of people are questioning it. Yeah. I, I, I think, and, and, and it makes sense because, I mean, if you sort of look back and you say, well, why... You know, why was wholesale a, a business model? Well, it was a business model because uh, you know cities and markets urbanized. Um, there was no way that a manufacturer could penetrate these enormous markets anymore. They needed distribution on the ground, and so they began selling their products to merchants, and that was the, the basis for wholesale distribution. And then you flash forward now, and, and post-internet, we live in a world where, once again, those same brands can start to nurture relationships with consumers on a direct basis, something that they really haven't been able to do for hundreds of years. Sure. They can do it once again. And so I think that's put a lot of brands in a position now where they're in the cold, hard light of 2018. They're sort of evaluating the, the relative equity that they get from distribution of their products through merchants. And a lot of the brands I'm talking to are saying, you know, a significant percentage of our distribution actually drains equity out of our brand. Why? Because they're not really delivering the kind of experience that these brands would like to have associated with their products. And in some cases, it's worse than that. In some cases, the brand is really sitting on the shelf only to attract the consumer to the threshold where they're actually sold over to something else. You know, in, in some cases, they're private label brands or house brands. Um, Can you give me an example of what you mean, though? Um, yeah, I mean, and we're talking about brands across the spectrum. So not, not just fashion brands, but certainly fashion brands would be included in that, where, you know, you're, you're advertising a well-known brand only to bring the consumer in and try and move them over to a house label or a private label where you're actually making more margin as a retailer. Um, 
as opposed to just selling the branded product. So the, ret- the retailer makes more margin on the private label stuff at the expense of some of the brands that they're working on with, it, on a wholesale basis. Exactly. And, and even if you look at, at the grocery industry, for example, um, brands are, are going through these kinds of calculations right now. Brands uh, like Campbell's Soup are thinking, hey, maybe we should be selling direct to consumer because we are just the brand that's bringing the consumer to the shelf so that that merchant can promote their own private label brand. Uh, And it's happening across the spectrum in terms of product. So when you're advising an executive that's grappling with this decision, that's saying, not sure I wanna be in that particular retail environment with some of those brands, uh, not sure, you know, that I'm getting the full kind of value Mm -hmm. or the margins that I could get in another more direct to consumer channel. Like how do you advise executives to make the decisions about reallocating or shifting that channel focus? And is it to move completely away from wholesale Mm -hmm. or do you still see some role for wholesale to play in the overall mix? So uh, it's an evaluation that has to take place. There's no easy answer, obviously. Um, as an organization, I think you have to look at your distribution and you have to ask that question. What percent of our distribution do we feel actually um, pumps equity into our brand versus takes equity away from our brand? Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but at Nike in 2017, Mark Parker came out in one of the boldest announcements I've ever seen. And he said to a... a a network of 30,000 merchants worldwide that we're going to be investing in 40 of you going forward. The rest of you, thanks for coming out, but we're going to be reclaiming that investment we make in you now. We're going to be putting it into our own stores, into our direct-to-consumer websites, and we're going to take our destiny back. Uh, Because I think what, what Mark Parker understands is that at the end of the day, running shoes are pretty easy to make. And there's lots of different kinds, and all they have is their brand. And if their brand loses value in the marketplace, then they're done. So, um, what should a what should a CEO do? I think um, you definitely have to take a look at it and say, would we would we be better off at least venturing into direct to consumer for a few reasons? Number one, yes, the sales are higher. Uh, consumers buy 86% more when they're buying directly from a brand than when they're buying through a merchant that sells the brand. 86% more on the revenue line, um, significantly more on the profit line. I think Nike's margins go from 38% to 62% when they sell direct. But the other thing is, I think you send a message to the market when you go direct to consumer that this is sort of the bellwether for experience that we expect. When we say the Nike experience, this is what we mean. And I think that's important, an important message to the market as well. So if a brand is currently, you know, say a Nike um, or a Levi's, another brand that I think has made the same kind of shift. Absolutely. If they're, if they're heavily indexed currently in the wholesale space and they're reaching a large portion of their customer base, perhaps less profitably through those channels, mm-hmm. how, how quickly and in what way do you recommend that they make that change? 
Because that's a that's a like for for big ships like Nike and Levi's, like that's a lot of change to make yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah. The the question around tactics, like how do you tactically roll this out, that comes up a lot because uh, there's a a feeling, and it's and it's a feeling I understand, but but executives want to understand how is this going to scale. So if I create this experience, I create this direct to consumer experience. How do I scale that now across all my different markets, all my different channels, all my different formats? And and I think the answer is don't worry about that right now. I think the first step is to define what that experience is first. And that's the step that unfortunately most brands don't really go through. They don't properly define kind of who are we? What does the unfiltered Nike experience or Levi's experience really look and feel and smell and sound and even taste like? Let's really define what that looks like. And then let's build perfection if we can. Let's let's build it once and see what perfection looks like. And if we all then can stand back and be proud of this, whether it's an own store or whether it's a direct-to-consumer web proposition, then let's talk about how we scale it how we, and how we distribute that experience across our markets. And let's, just, let's then talk about the time frame that it'll take to do that. But I think too many brands just try and boil the ocean right, right out of the gate. You know, they're thinking about, oh my God, this is you know, this massive undertaking. I say, look, just build it once. It's almost like they need to do what they call in lean startup land, the MVP. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And what should they be testing for in that MVP? So if you, if you come up with this concept and you can execute it on a smaller, less maybe less ambitious scale, yeah. but still aiming for a perfect mm-hmm. execution, like what, what kinds of things should they be measuring and testing to understand how it's working? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know that anybody really has the answer to that at this point, but I think that my, my premise has been that what we are really seeing taking place in the market is a transition whereby media is becoming the store. I mean, for all intents and purposes, we as consumers now can shop through media and we can see vast selections of product, we can obtain volumes of product information, and we can transact with a click, you know? So media has in many ways come into replicate what stores have done for centuries, but they do it better. Now, I think the role of a store is to become media. Physical experiences in stores are powerful, powerful media experiences. And brands will go out to the, the open market and they'll pay you know, vast sums of money to capture a consumer's attention for 10 seconds on a Facebook video that's muted. But meanwhile, they've got living human beings going through their stores. Those are important impressions, important media impressions. So um, I think one of the worst mistakes you can make is say, well, we're going to open this beautiful store on the Champs-Élysées, and we expect immediate return through sales per square foot. I think that's one of the worst mistakes you can make. I think you have to sort of say, look, let's, let's quantify the value of all those media impressions, and let's bake that into the trial. We have to consider the value of this asset as media. And I think once you start looking at it from that dimension, um, the, the payoff is, is rich. 
So everyone's talking about direct-to-consumer right now, but one of the challenges that some of the kind of original direct-to-consumer brands have started to face as they've scaled is the cost of acquiring customers, mm-hmm. right? So direct-to-consumer is great when you're, uh, or easier when you're smaller and you can maybe create a bunch of content that creates sure. virality, a little bit like Dollar Shave Club or some of these things that understood how to use content to draw in um, you know, customers yeah. basically and introduce them to the brand. Mm-hmm. But as those wells of easier, easily acquired customers begin to dry up, like how, how do you think about the cost of customer acquisition through the process of moving or shifting towards a direct to consumer model? Because of course, one of the benefits of the wholesale model is, you know, you're in a department store, you're in a boutique, and it's those boutiques and those department stores that have to do the job of bringing the customers in. And if yeah. they have good locations or longstanding yeah. Uh, relationships like the customers are coming. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think at McKinsey at one point said when they were, they were sort of analyzing direct to consumer metrics, they said that your cost of acquisition should be one sixth of what you actually make from a customer. So one sixth of your revenue uh, should be uh, what you're attributing to customer um, uh, to customer acquisition. Um, but I mean, figures may vary on that. I think the key is obviously you, you have to be spending a fraction on acquisition compared to what you're making. And I think the only way you can really do that is by delivering something that's absolutely remarkable. You know, it's no longer, um, it's, it's just simply no longer good enough to say, you know what, we'll just take an average proposition to market and we'll buy enough advertising to, to bring people to us. Things just don't happen that way anymore. So. The brands that the brands that have succeeded in, in direct to consumer are brands that don't just um, have a unique product, but they have a unique way of buying the product as well. They've created a, a unique me- mechanism through which the customer can engage with them. Steve Jobs said one time that uh, people think when they think about the word design, they think about the way something looks. But he said when you dig deeper, it's really about how it works. Great design is about the mechanics, not just the aesthetics. And that's sort of been a guiding principle for me too, because I really believe the brands that are succeeding, if you just look at what Casper did in the bedding market, for example, they questioned the mechanics of how people buy beds. And they brought better mechanics to to the market. Um, So it wasn't just that the product was different, it was that the whole experience of buying the product was different. So let's talk about Casper or Away or you know, Glossy any of these, AR. you know, all of these yeah. direct-to-consumer brands that are really becoming, I mean, I'm, when I'm in, a, I'm in an airport now, I see just as many away bags, it feels, as I do a Rimova bag or a Samsonite bag. Maybe it's kind of What do you part, have to do to be unique these I days? I know, but, you know, part of, <laughs> probably part of, like, a reflection of the places I'm traveling, so it's not like a representative sample, but, right. you know, for Casper, for example... For people that don't know, can you unpack that a bit for us about like what they did to the mechanics of buying a mattress is like a big one-off purchase that only yeah. happens maybe every 10 years or something. Yeah. Well, and part of that I think is because traditionally that experience has been miserable enough that you didn't want to do it any more than every 10 years if you could avoid it. You know, the bedding industry is a classic example really of where you have all of the incumbents in an industry begin to think and act exactly the same. 
you know, and it's really no different than the auto industry in many respects, you know, and that's why Tesla all of a sudden, whoa, everyone was just shocked that you could, you know, have this unique experience with Tesla. But basically Casper looked at it and said, look, what's with all the, you know, the different kinds of construction and the different materials and the different sizes and the different quality levels. I mean, it was like playing 3D chess just to pick a mattress. And then, you know, you have to go to the store. You have to lie down on it, check it out. You have to wait for delivery. Delivery is a huge ordeal, putting your bed together. And they, they just looked at every single pain point in that, that experience and said, well, why can't we just have like three sizes, three different firmness levels that you could literally pick online and you buy your bed online. We ship it to you in a box that's about, you know, I don't know, the, the little bit larger than two suitcases maybe. And that night you're sleeping in your new bed. They just took all the friction out of it, put it in terms that the average consumer could understand, took all the complexity out of the decision process. And so not only is the product wouldn't say it's the best bed you've ever slept on, perhaps, but it's good enough. But and it might be the best experience that you've ever had exactly. in, in buying them. It reminds exactly. me of... It's like Warby Parker, right? They may not be the best glasses you've ever bought, but the experience is easy. Yeah. It, it reminds me, I heard um, Jen Rubio talking at some point about what they did She's the founder of Away, and you know the process they went through in thinking through and unpicking the whole process of buying a suitcase and showing up in this like terrible suitcase shop where you had like, you know, one really cheap bag for like sixty bucks and another bag for like six hundred bucks, and you couldn't really tell the difference, and there were too many options and too many colors exactly. and too many materials, and yeah. you go into paralysis. It's yeah. it's cognitive paralysis. So what can the fashion industry learn from that? You know, I'm curious because part of what we offer as an industry. And you know what people talk about in fashion is choice and personal expression yeah. and all like how do what can the fashion industry take away from all of all of what's happening in this DTC space? So, you know, I, I sort of looked when I wrote the the last book, Reengineering Retail. I was really interested to understand how all brands can do a better job of creating remarkable experiences for consumers. I think the one thing that everyone seems to agree on today is that product in, on its own is not enough. I mean, there was a time where, you know, if, if, if you sold uh, Louis handbags, that was, you know, that was all you needed to do. Or if you were Gucci, that your name was enough. And now I think everyone's coming to the realization that there is just too much out there. And not only is there too much out there, it's like there's something new every day. So it's not just about what you sell, but how you sell it. So I was really intrigued to sort of understand what is it really that great brands do when they create remarkable experiences. And I found that there were basically five things. And <clears throat> the five things are surprise, uniqueness, personalization, engagement, so a deeper level of engagement, and then repeatability. Right? So you can't just have a great experience and you know, execute it 40% of the time. That's almost, it's, it's worse than having a bad experience. Um, so if you can be surprising, unique, personalized, engaging, and repeatable as a brand, you will stand out. And when you think about it, I, I sort of, the, the kind of the ultimate experience that I was able to find in the market was a Ritz, like a Ritz-Carlton experience. Staying at a Ritz-Carlton property, all five things happen consistently. 
You know, you're consistently surprised by something at a Ritz-Carlton. It's a unique experience that's based on the property that you're staying in. They're always personalized experiences. You feel this level of sensory engagement in their, in their properties where it's, you know, everything from what you smell and hear to what you taste and feel. And then they, they execute beautifully uh, almost 100% of the time. That's, what, that's where retail needs to go. Can you think of an example, and you travel the world and you see retail experiences everywhere. Can you think of a fashion industry example that best fits those five characteristics? No, no, I can't. It's, it's very difficult. I mean, I will, I will say this as a general statement because people ask me all the time, like, who's doing it all right? Who's nailing it out there? And the truth is most of the time when I have a truly delightful experience with a retailer, it's not one of the big brands. It's, it's not one of the largest retailers. Usually in any given city, whether it's Amsterdam or London or Paris, it's a retailer that's just off the main street. You know, someone that is maybe a family business, smaller, independent business. I will say, you know, I had a, an interesting experience in Vienna a, a couple weeks ago, like crawling through Vienna looking for cool stores, you know, and finally came across a, a brand called Freitag. You heard mm-hmm. of them? I have. Okay, so they sell bags, right? But it was surprising, it was unique, they had elements of personalization, it was a very engaging shopping experience, and I'm assuming it was repeatable. But really cool products, recycled products. So why was it surprising? It was surprising because it wasn't, first of all, when you approach the store, the first thing that greets you is a sign in the window that says, rent a bag for free for two weeks. So you think, what? What's with that, right? So that's sort of intriguing and surprising. So you go in and you find out, sure enough, you can, if you find a bag you want, you can sign it out, keep it for two weeks, try it, see how you like it. That sort of draws you in and then you discover, oh wow, first of all, the merchandising in the store was really unique because they actually used the boxes that, they, that, they, uh, con- that contain the products as the merchandising and the process you go through is essentially like pulling out these boxes like little cubby holes and seeing what's in them and every single bag is original it's unique because they're all made from recycled inner tubes and yeah um, truck tires and seat belts and stuff so the whole thing like what the product was how it was merchandised um the kind of the excitement of looking for the one that was just perfect for you when you put all that together, that's a standout experience to me. Walking into a high-end fashion retailer where the security guards are at the door and where it's this air of, you don't even want to engage with it, you don't want to touch anything, you know? That to me is not a great shopping experience. Mm. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I think we're looking for more than that now. We're looking for entertainment. Yeah. One of the key elements of the experience um, that you're talking about that provides this kind of sense of entertainment or a sense of kind of you know, surprise and delight is the people working in your stores. Mm-hmm. So what roles and how, what roles does the like shop floor associate have to play? I mean, I know from the Ritz Carlton example that, you know, you cited, like they have this set of the mantras about how customer service is supposed to kind of be delivered at a place like Ritz Carlton. Right. And that becomes, you know, a key part of the training process. And that's what makes it repeatable and scalable, I guess. Mm-hmm. But how, how do big retailers empower their employees and the people on the shop floor to give that experience? Because, you know, a lot of the reason why I would go to a store now is because I need advice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And I think there, there is a key transition going on now in, in sort of this post-digital world where advice has a new definition now. You know, 
I can I can have access to so much information about things. You know, before I go buy a, a watch, I can know everything about a specific Omega watch. You know, I can know which James Bond film it was in, and you know whether it's a chronometer or not, or you know, I can know an infinite amount about that. So it's not necessarily product knowledge that I'm going to the store to talk to someone about. What I want now is I want to talk to someone who's speaking from experience. And that raises an interesting question for the retail industry. And that is, can your own employees afford your products? Because if they can't afford your products, or there's no way for them to, to use your products, they can't speak to customers from the experience of one who has used the product. And rapport is really the key to sales. You know, the key to any good sales relationship is that I as a customer have a rapport with you and that rapport is based on the fact that I trust you. I trust your opinion. I think that's the success of companies that truly like REI, where you go and you talk to someone about a kayak, well they'll tell you they'll tell you about it because they just used it on the weekend, you know, and you have this innate sense of trust in their expertise. So I think that Companies need to make a decision now. You're either going to um, empower your people with uh, the, the technology that they need to be brand ambassadors, you know, to have the answers at their fingertips, the information they need, um, and give them the ability to be brand ambassadors by paying them enough that they can actually afford the things that you're selling. Um, or at least give them a big enough discount on them that they can genuinely exactly. speak to those products. Yeah. Or you have to accept the fact that, um, that, that you, won't, you won't have brand ambassadors. You'll just have sales clerks, sales associates. And I think customer expectations are so much higher than that now, especially when we're talking about high-end fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, that, as you say, the information is ubiquitous now. Everyone knows which brand has what products and which collections but you know in terms of i think the other thing with fashion is you also that advice is yeah it could partially be from experience but also it could be from having the confidence to give honest feedback to customers and be able sure. to say well listen like i think direct that customer to something else that might be better suited for their body type or uh, yeah. whatever it might be and 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 being able to really add value i, I think a lot of you know fashion companies have been um, kind of upping the ante on personal styling and consulting in mm -hmm. the store where there's mm -hmm. this like real relationship, this trusted relationship that gets built between the, sure. the, the kind of sales associate and the customer and the you know, sales associate might send a WhatsApp message and say, oh, we got this stuff. And like, it becomes really like a personal relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so it should. And this is the thing. Yeah. I think you, I think what you want ultimately is you want people who are super users of your products. They absolutely love your products and they use them like crazy. They love talking to people about those products. They're so passionate about it. They'll take any opportunity to talk to people about it. And they really ultimately uh, enjoy people, you know, that they fundamentally enjoy people. And that's a hiring decision that you're making. But I mean, if you look at a brand like Sephora, Sephora's done a tremendous, a tremendous job of bringing the right people in and turning them into brand ambassadors. And a lot of it is just through, as you, as you say, it's through Contra, right? It's, it's giving, uh, giving them access to the products that they crave. Um, but, um, but they've done a great job of animating the experience. You have to go through like five interviews to, to work on the sales floor of a Sephora. So, I mean, it's pretty serious. 
What's the biggest threat facing retailers right now? I mean, if, 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 if you're the CEO of a big retail organization with hundreds or thousands of shops, what do you think is keeping those kinds of guys up at night? If they were speaking to me honestly and not worried about kind of exposing themselves, yeah. you know, what are they worried about, really? I think they're worried... I think what, what, what worries them is, is this. I think that they, they know that they have to innovate. They know that they have to do things that they have never done before. But they also know that in order to innovate, <clears throat> they have to embrace uncertainty. And I think that's a really tough thing for a lot of leaders to do. Because Western culture has predicated leadership on the idea of certainty. That the leader, the CEO, is the person who can get on the earnings call or they can stand up at the board meeting and they can say definitively, here's the strategy. This is where we're going. And they can be very certain about that. Innovation by definition is uncertainty. If you are really and truly doing things that have never been done before, uh, implementing new processes, new systems, new technologies, new experiences, you have to be willing to embrace that uncertainty. And you have to be willing to kind of set off into the fog and iterate and triangulate and navigate as you go. And I think that's a very difficult thing for a lot of CEOs to do. And so they, they become paralyzed and they do nothing. What about Amazon? Because the thing that they, they all, even some of the luxury retailers, honestly, I mean, people are just freaking out about Amazon. Mm -hmm. You know, Amazon that first was a books retailer and then became the everything store. Yeah. And now more recently has gone after the grocery industry. Yeah. Uh, it's talking about going after healthcare. Yeah. You know, wouldn't you be scared of Amazon? Yeah. And, and, and you should be. I mean, you know, anyone, anyone at this point that is downplaying Amazon, who, by the way, has been profitable for the last 11 quarters, so we don't even, we don't even have that anymore to yeah, say. Yeah, we used to be able to say, yeah. oh, they're not profitable, they're growing fast, but it's all yeah. you know, expensive. It's all top yeah. end, you know, it's all top line. No, uh, profitable the last 11 quarters, more and more profit coming from the retail business, not just from their Amazon Web Services business. Um, yeah, I mean, they should, they, should be, they should be haunting everyone's dreams because, first of all, this is not a retailer. This is a data company. I mean, that's what Amazon does. Books were an easy entry point to get them, to get the platform started uh, because, you know, easily cataloged, easy to ship. But at its core, Amazon is a data innovation technology company. You could argue now that they're a media company, they're an advertising company, they're logistics, they're shipping, they're, they're whatever they want to be, it seems. And that's what makes them particularly dangerous. And the ecosystem of value now that they're building for consumers is such that if you're a Prime member, you know, it's not just about free, fast shipping anymore. It's about access to music. It's about access to original video content. Like they're, they're outspending HBO and Netflix on original content. So it's a very sticky web of value that they draw consumers into. 
Um, the, the one figure that just blows my mind is that in the U.S., 82% of households with incomes over $110,000 a year are Prime members. You know, and the renewal staggering. rates on Prime are like way above 90%. St stunning, absolutely. Just in the last quarter alone, their membership ranks swelled by 47%. You know, so. You know, Amazon is a threat. There's, there's no question, and they are absolutely going to take a piece of, of everyone's lunch. But I think that there's the flip side, and the flip side is Amazon's an incredibly effective tool to get what you want when you know you want it, and when you know what you want. I mean, it's just you know, copy and paste anything into the search bar and you know minutes later you're getting the confirmation that it's being shipped to you. What it isn't is it's not yet anyway a very fun way to shop. It's not social, it's not very engaging. Um, you it's know, a utility. It's a utility. There's no discovery element to Amazon. As much no. as they try, as much as they have that algorithm that recommends stuff to yeah. you, um, it's a very cold utilitarian experience one that's hyper efficient and you know good price and all that stuff exactly but if you want surprise and delight and all the stuff that you mentioned earlier it's not that it's not there no it's not and i think that's a real achilles heel for amazon huge opportunity for other retailers uh to to capitalize on you know so retailers really ought to be focusing on how can we be you know how can we be not more like amazon because I've heard retailers say that too. You know, we want to we want to sort of be able to compete with Amazon. That's not, probably not a good idea. You know, you're probably better off to say, how can we be the anti-Amazon? How can we actually give consumers that surprise and delight uh, when they're shopping for the things that we sell? At the end of the day, I think Amazon recognizes something, and it's pretty clear. About forty to fifty percent of everything we buy in our lives, we buy pretty routinely. You know, if you start to really look at your consumption, you'll find that, oh, I buy the same quantity, the same brand, the same, you know, and a lot of those things in our lives are just replenishment purchases. I think that's what Bezos and, and his team are really zeroing in on it, because if they can capture that 40% of our buying behavior, that's going to hurt a lot of retailers, you know, especially in the grocery category for sure. Potentially beauty as well. Because beauty's a huge category, right? You know, like they've they've struggled in beauty so far, but the idea of replenishment and repeat products, like yeah. there is discovery as well. But as far as I can tell, when people, men and women, discover a product that works for them, yeah. You they don't, often don't stick mess to with it. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, Amazon's uh, Amazon's definitely a threat. And 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 yet, I will also say that you know Amazon's making overtures to retailers and saying, hey, um, I mean, they had a huge meeting, three day meeting in, in 2017. They called in CPG brands and they said, you want a direct relationship with your consumer? Well, guess what? Amazon's the platform that can give you that. So come to Amazon, sell direct to your consumer everybody's happy and that sounds great and brands have been not walking but running to Amazon to have this sort of direct relationship in the background though Amazon has been trademarking brand names across categories beauty included some of them they're not doing anything with they're just parking them um, my trademarking them online or what do you mean they're they're trade they're trademarking the brand name so if it's a beauty brand like Beauty Bar, for example, Beauty Bar's in the market, but there are these other brands that are just sort of being trademarked and then just sitting there. 
They're not doing anything with them yet. The question is why? My belief is they're calling brands onto the platform because the brands literally become market testers for them. Amazon can sit back and say, okay, in men's cosmetics, for example, what are the, what are the half a dozen products that outsell everything else? Um, Okay, great. We'll, we'll go make those. Yeah, and they've done that in other categories. Yeah, yeah. They're the number one seller of apparel in the U.S. now. Yeah. They're the number one seller of electronics in the U.S. Of over and above Best Buy. You're right. So if they, if they want to do it in beauty, they'll do it in beauty. Yeah. Now, the one category that maybe has been their, um, their real problem is luxury. And they've, I, I think they've been very anxious to try and tackle that. A lot of it had to do with the, the fakes and counterfeits that were in the system and brands sort of balked at the idea of coming onto Amazon's platform. But, you know, they'll go after do that Do you think too. it will happen one day that luxury brands will have no choice? I mean, it happened to Nike and it happened to yeah. Levi's. Like, they did the calculus and they said, listen. You know, I did a podcast a few weeks ago with um, the CEO of Levi's and he said, we basically realized that there was all of this fake product available on Amazon, and if we weren't in that channel with the real product, yeah. the customers engaging with a product that wasn't real, and it was potentially damaging our brand. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not unlike the position that brands found themselves in with Walmart all, you know, so many years ago, where the numbers on Walmart were just so compelling like to be a chief marketing officer and stand up in a, in a meeting of your executive and say, we should not be selling in Walmart. It was a heresy, you know, um, because the sales numbers were just so lucrative. But a lot of brands came to realize that, it, that Walmart almost killed them. You know, some really good companies like Rubbermaid, for example, almost went out of business because of Walmart. You know, um, there's this famous Vlasic pickle story where Walmart said to Vlasic, we want a gallon jar of pickles, but we want you to charge it at half the price that you would normally charge it at. Well, now we're in a position where we can't, we can't say no. So I think that brands may have, may, they may make the decision to sell on Amazon. My encouragement would be do it with your eyes wide open and, and pack a parachute because Amazon does not have your best interests at heart here. Mm-hmm. Amazon is, as you said, Amazon really does want to be the everything store. And they're not really concerned about which brands go out of business as a result. There's one element of Amazon's model that I do think it's worth fashion and luxury brands and retailers generally to think about, which is the consumer data element. Mm. And of course, we're living in an environment where GDPR and all of this you know, mm-hmm. data is like really in the air, the, you know, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, but you know, having that direct relationship with the consumer mm-hmm. and understanding who, um, you know, Mister or Mrs. Um, you know, Panache is who walks into the store in Beijing and buys something online while they're in Hong Kong, and then rolls into a store in Florence a few weeks later. Like having that single view of the customer and being able to really understand. Mm-hmm that customer's buying behavior, maybe their traveling patterns, um, the customer relationship they have with specific sales associates in those stores. Like most brands don't have that information no. now. So the, the customer ends up having a very 
fragmented relationship with the same brand. And the customer thinks of it, the brand is this like monolithic mm-hmm, thing. That's mm-hmm. one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the customer experience doesn't feel that way. Whereas when you walk into an Apple store, you know, and I think this is something that Apple does really well. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit like Amazon, maybe because of the whole information they have from your iTunes account. You know, they have the ability, they have your iTunes account, they have your email, they have your payment data, they have all this information yeah. that really helps to personalize that experience, to use one of the words yeah. they used earlier. Like, how, how do brands get over that if you don't have, you know, the luxury of having iTunes that basically everyone has an account to, so you have the customer data and information and email. Yeah. A lot of it is fighting against legacy structures, right? A lot of it is that you're coming out of a world where, you know, store store business was run very separately from the online business. In some cases, they barely talk to each other, you know, whereas new era brands are built right out of right out of the gate they're built like platforms it doesn't matter you know basically the brand is just a platform and it doesn't matter what format the customer happens to be in at the moment they're still on the platform um, so it's it's really sort of um, you know br- brands traditionally were built like empires you know it was all about um, building these as you put it these huge monolithic structures whereas now they really have to be built more like networks you know, we have to start thinking about the brand as more of a network where it doesn't matter what part of the brand the consumer is touching, it's, it's all part of the same data set, right? And that's a very hard thing for a lot of legacy brands to overcome, to okay. re-engineer the corporation to, to fit. Sure. Um, last question, yeah. which is, you know, a top tip or a piece of advice. So if you're, you know, a brand or a, reta- a physical retailer trying to make this shift um, to operate in this new landscape, where's the first place you start? What's the, like, what is the first step you have to take as you start kind of planning out your transition into this yeah. new, highly, you know, rapidly evolving retail market with consumer behavior that's shifting and technology and everything that's happening all at the same time. Well, this is it, right? It's, it's, like, um, it's like standing in the middle of a hurricane and trying to grab things as they fly by you and hoping that you've grabbed onto the right thing that can save your life, you know, that you've grabbed onto a, uh, a life preserver and, and not an anvil, you know, in this maelstrom. That's the way retailers feel. And so retailers and brands will often ask, like, what do we do first? You know, is there a technology we should buy? Is there something we should be investing in, et cetera, et cetera? And I think it's like life in a way, because the place we start with any problem, I think, has to be by looking looking at ourselves, like looking inside as opposed to looking outside. And I give the same advice to brands. You have to start by defining base case today, what is, what, who are we and what is the experience that our consumers get? And that sounds like a really easy exercise, but it's not. It, it takes a tremendous amount of uh, honesty and fortitude and trust among your team and your executive to really dive into that customer experience and, and uh, come to an agreement on it. Uh, because it's a very personal thing if you run a company, you know, the way your customers are treated. 
But I think once you define what that end-to-end experience looks like, then you can start to really zero in on these moments of truth. You know, when a customer, uh, when a customer who usually shops us in Toronto or, or London shops us in Hong Kong, that's a moment of truth. What happens in that moment? How do we engineer it so that it's surprising, unique, personalized, engaging, and repeatable? Then you can really start to define the architecture of the new experience. I think what it also allows you to do is you can step back and you can say, to what extent is the experience we deliver to consumers exactly the same as our competitors? And sometimes I think the answer to that is shocking because you realize that there's zero differentiation, you know? So I think that's the starting point. Step outside the hurricane. Don't start grabbing at things. Don't. And get a sense of, you know, where you fit in this whole market and what you're offering, basically. 100%, yeah. It's not just about buying another piece of technology, uh, making an acquisition, you know, hiring a new executive. Those things will just, you know, as I said, it's like fresh icing on a bad cake. Okay. Without mixing metaphors too much, because you, you always have great metaphors. But I, but I always have to end with cake. Yeah, they, Doug's, Doug's articles always have the most amazing metaphors, which uh, lead to like the, some of the best headlines that we've ever had on the site. But, um, and I'm sure the one for this podcast will be equally as good. But thank, thank you, Doug, for uh, stopping by here at POF My HQ pleasure. in you. London. This is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. I'm signing off from the Inside Fashion Podcast this week from London. Um, If you enjoyed this conversation with Doug Stevens, please leave us a comment, tell your friends about it, share the podcast on social media. You've just been hearing from The Retail Profit, um, who's one of the leading experts globally on this space. So um, thanks again to Doug, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again very, very soon. Bye. If you've made it this far, that means you've listened to this entire podcast, and it makes me think you might be interested in knowing more about BOF Professional, our global membership community from the business of fashion, which keeps you up to date on everything you need to know that's happening in the global fashion industry. For a limited time only, we are offering our BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF Professional membership. To get 25% off your first year of an annual membership, click on the link in the description, select the annual package, and then enter the invitation code PODCAST2018 at the checkout. I hope you enjoy it. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.